Good evening, and welcome to Donnell Edwards' Viewpoints, and I'm your host, Donnell Edwards. We thank you for joining us for tonight's program, Lessons for Us All, Overcoming Extreme Poverty and Life on Welfare. Our special guest tonight is speaker, author, and advocate, Ms. Pamela M. Covington. Ms. Covington worked in communications for over 30 years. Her articles have appeared in City Lifestyle magazines, daily and weekly newspapers, and numerous company publications. Prior to her occupational successes, she unexpectedly went from living a financially secure, middle-class lifestyle to that of a welfare recipient struggling below poverty level in crime-ridden, drug-infested neighborhoods. She escaped that stint of deep poverty through the pursuit of higher education and has earned a master's degree in management, a master's degree in human resource management, a bachelor's degree in communications, and an associate degree in television production. She offers practical, personal strategies to help others move beyond their challenges and take more control of their lives. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Pamela M. Covington to the CWR Talk Network and Donnell Edwards' Viewpoints. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you, Mr. Edwards. I certainly appreciate the opportunity and the invite to be on your show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. We're glad that you were able to come. Now, uh, Pamela, uh, please tell us about your book, A Day at the Fair, One Woman's Welfare Passage. Okay. The the book basically covers a a three-year period of my life, and it portrays the story of how I went from living in comfort to deep poverty and how I managed to escape it. But in between that, it describes many of the trials and things that uh, I fell into all along the way. Um, I'd like to clarify that uh, until that situation occurred that put me into poverty, I had no experience with it whatsoever. One of the things that has led me to speak uh, on this issue and to advocate for issues that are related to low to moderate income individuals was that like many people who have no poverty experience whatsoever, I must admit I held to the typical stereotypes of persons who are recipients of the safety net. I didn't even know anything about it, but I had the nerve to have an opinion. You know, I bought into the whole thing of lazy and didn't want anything better for themselves or their children, freeloaders, so on and so forth. And yet I didn't even know anyone on welfare. And so ironically, fate turned that around, and I found myself becoming an applicant. And that is where I learned so much about the reality of it. So I decided that many years later, almost 30 years later, I got laid off from a job I had been at for 13 or 14 years, and my girlfriends were literally having a pity party for me. And I told them, that's nothing. I'm I'm going to be fine. You don't realize this is nothing compared to what I've been through. Well, my story took place in Florida, but my friends here where I'm at now in Virginia had no idea of that part of my history. 
And okay. so they said, well, what have you been through? And I told them, and they said, you need to write a book because no one would ever think that. It's totally inspirational. People would benefit from hearing that. That would maybe help inspire them to, to keep trying. And so five years later, I was able to complete and finish the book. It took a considerable amount of research. Okay. Uh, if I understand correctly, you went back through uh, records to kind of reestablish your, your timeline for your book. Is that, that correct? That is absolutely correct. In fact, it was while I was in junior college, uh, just kind of finding my way through uh, what I wanted to do or be or how I was going to release myself from the poverty situation, that um, I discovered that I had this skill to write. And in one of the classes, the professor had made us aware of a new provision called the Freedom of Information Act, or the FOIA. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you, it was no fun being under the thumbs of the social services organization. They were constantly demanding so much of me. At one point, when I found out about the Freedom of Information Act, I'm like, hmm, maybe this is my chance to demand something of them. So back <laughs> in 1984... I wrote my first Freedom of Information Act request for my welfare records. I had no clue back then what I wanted them for, if I was going to do anything with them. And that is what I ended up many years later actually building the timeline for my book from. I actually have those original welfare application documents. Okay. So at that time, uh, you did not have the idea for the book. This was something that resulted from your participation in class and learning about the Freedom of Information Act? Yes, and I, I requested them simply as a quote-unquote journalism student. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Now, uh, you mentioned something real interesting about the uh, opinions that you had developed about people on welfare prior to your situation and your fall into deep poverty yourself. Uh, just for our listeners, uh, and, and if you have this, this information and can comment on it, uh, are, are there many people today who are just a step away from having some catastrophic event in their life, whether it's medical or uh, unemployment or something of that nature, and, and going through the same experience that, that you had? Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure that, for one thing, life is so unpredictable. We never really know what type of adversity we might find ourselves situated in that could very well cause us to uh, fall. And um, especially those persons now who are reliant on the safety net, as we all know, that every time you turn around, some segment of it is being threatened. And in my instance, what led me to go from comfort to, from total comfort to total discomfort <laughs> is that uh, my partner was a Vietnam vet who suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder. And he 
would go into violent fits of rage. I loved him dearly, and I must say I went on for the next 20, 30 years, never found anyone as wonderful as he was on his good days. But that part of him was the reason that I had to make a decision to leave the comfort behind for the sake of my my children's safety. I had two children when I left, my son who was nine years old and my baby who was just one and a half, another boy. Wow. Okay. Uh, I can relate to to what you're saying to some extent because uh, I – was downsized from a Fortune 100 uh, company position that I held for over a decade. And at that time, I didn't have a college degree. And I I thought in my mind I had prepared because we could all see the handwriting on the wall and knew what was going to happen. And over several years had been working toward getting experience and getting into positions so that if something did happen, uh, it wouldn't be that difficult to make a transition to another company. The only problem was without a college degree, other companies, unlike the one that I was downsized from, wouldn't even talk to me. And we lost uh, just about everything we had and had to start over. And uh, it, that's so I can relate to uh, to what you're you're saying. That was a different reasoning, but at the same time, the, the circumstances were were similar. And uh, I, I just like to uh, encourage everyone who's listening: uh, make sure that you're preparing and putting something away, so that if something does happen. You do have uh, some cushion to fall back on to get you through for uh, a while, and maybe it will tide you over until you can kind of find something else to get back on your feet. Now, uh, why did you decide to reveal such a deeply personal and painful part of your life? Well, it was truly painful. Um, There were certain sections of the story that, I'm I'm not going to lie. I I cried over, and I had to work it through because, you know, it's easy for us to want to take the unpleasant experiences and put them behind us. After all, we know that we must push on. We have to continue with life. And I had done that with that particular part of my life. So here I was now pulling it back up because it was so important to me to make sure I'm providing the best uh, most uh, accurate and, and, and feelable uh, portrayal of the story, and it was I was it was worth me doing it because I had several intents. The first one was to inspire other individuals who are down to nothing. Believe me, I know what that's like. You see, people don't see that today. They only see the Pamela who appears to have it all together, but. I wrote it to inspire persons who are faced with something they just never saw coming to hit them, or maybe they're dealing with some life trial that's totally different than what I've gone through. But the bottom line is I wanted to make sure that my readers would come to realize that in the end what really made the difference in 
my situation with my belief in myself and my determination, which can be extremely hard to even recall you possess when you are faced with that level of adversity. In my case, it was day-to-day survival. So I wrote the book to inspire persons who are faced with any type of major life transitions, be it women who have done, as I had done, less uh, a comfortable situation for the sake of safety and sanity, uh, persons who age out of the foster care system, people who are reentering into society after they've been incarcerated and paid their debt, to inspire other people to see how little of nothing I had and to know that they too have within them. And I always quote Ralph Waldo Emerson who said that what lies before us and what lies behind us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. And so the book illustrates that. And that was one of the reasons. The second reason I wrote it was to get some of the myths of welfare out in the open and tell it like it really is. Because just like I used to do, which I feel qualifies me, I had all these pre preconceived notions about persons who received food stamps or subsidized daycare or Section 8 and all of that, even though, again, like I said, I didn't even know anybody on welfare. So I wanted to write an accurate portrayal that shows a success story coming out of safety net benefits because all we ever hear of is people who misuse or abuse. Exactly. Because I get hit over the head with that a lot. I mean, all I have to do is mention the word welfare or um, assistance and what have you, and there's a whole stigma attached to it. You would think that, I was still on it sometimes with the response that I get. And so I wanted to demonstrate how uh, important the resources I had were to me being able to pull myself out of that situation in three years. And the first of the three years, I spent just adjusting to my, my, my surroundings. I have to be honest with you. I had to come to terms with how and what was appropriate when in Rome do as the Romans kind of thing. But those second two years was totally for education that I could not achieve without subsidized daycare. Uh, We had something called the BEOG, Basic Education Opportunity Grant, I believe it stood for. And and there was an SEOG that was um, another um, in parallel to that. And the Pell Grant, which we know recently has undergone some cuts. So I wrote it to show the, the accuracy of what the safety net can do when it falls into place and play the role that it needs to play. So that, those are two of the reasons why I wrote it and was willing to put myself out there because, believe me, my friends were saying, well, Pam, how much of your personal life are you going to put out there? And I'm like, people, if I'm not going to tell the whole story so it could be felt and seen and be informative as it needs to be, there's no sense in me writing the book. I'm putting right. it all in there. Right. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> I have nothing to be ashamed of. 
Okay. I, I agree with you totally, and I respect you for that. Now, uh, I want to remind our listeners as they listen to you and you describe coming from this abject poverty and being on welfare and that you were able to get back on your feet within three years, that all during that time, you're doing this with two children. That makes yeah. it even two more. Two children, two children in a strange city, because I didn't, I never lived there where I moved from Savannah mm-hmm. to Jacksonville, Florida. I'd never lived there before. I had no family there. But you just I had to get away. I needed to, I needed to put some distance between myself and the okay. situation. So that was four hours away. Okay. All right. Very good. Now, uh, also, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, if I may, I'd just like to clarify, you know, you and I are referring to the level of poverty that I was in, which is definitely called deep poverty. I'm talking about uh, living without a stove for five months in an unheated, unair conditioned tenement with your bedrooms on the second floor, no air conditioning in Florida. I didn't have a refrigerator wow. for two months. And on a good day, I cooked on a kerosene heater. I stole toilet paper from McDonald's. My children and I didn't have a place to live for almost a week, and we washed up in the McDonald's bathroom. And deep poverty is defined as living at the level that is half of the monetary definition that is deemed to be poverty by the United States government. So let's say if for a family of three in 1984, that amount was, and I'm just off the top of my head using a rough figure, let's say it was $4,800. Well, let's go 8000 make it even. Then my children and I being in deep poverty, that means we were living at half of the government-established measurement for poverty, and that's what deep poverty is. Okay. And that's, and that's even with the welfare check, the food stamps, and the child support, because my children's dad was one to pay his child support. Well, that's good. That's good. Wow, that really uh, kind of clarifies things even even more. Now, uh, while you were, were in the welfare system, uh, what uh, worked for you and what didn't work? Well, the things that aided me that were part of the safety net system, one of the biggest ones was the subsidized daycare. Okay. Because I could not have done well in school if I'm worried about my child being tended to and uh, his safety, uh, having meals and what have you. So no matter what else I was doing, number one was I had to make sure that my baby – had appropriate daycare, and that was subsidized as long as each semester I came to the center and proved that I was a full-time registered student. So that worked for me. But then what didn't work for me when I was going to school is when you're on public assistance, there's a periodic time at which you must have your information and your household income and everything reevaluated to remain a recipient. Well, 
after my first year in school and I demonstrated academic excellence, I became qualified to receive aid from the college because my grades were doing so well because the welfare system required me to report that as a change of income, which I did. They reduced my food stamps for myself and my two children down to $25. I've I've heard of that. Yes, yes. It's called the cliff effect. That is, while you're in poverty, while you're in the system and you're working towards getting your way out, it's a very delicate balance. Only you will really know when you can step out and be able to afford the equivalent of things like daycare, for example. And um, to have them punish me, it felt like punishment. I will never forget how angry I was. I was living, stomping down the hallway after I left and I'm in class and I'm all doggone it. I thought that that was the purpose of me getting on welfare was so that I could work myself back towards financial independence. And here I am now going to school, uh, two children, one of them a baby, living in substandard housing, enduring all the trying to keep us safe in the, in, in the crime-ridden neighborhood, and the reward that I got was to have my grocery bill cut. And in reality, who can have too much food? Yeah, you're, you're right about that, especially when you have children. And you had two yes. boys, right? Yes, one of them was nine years old. He was a growing boy, as we say. (laughs) But, you know, uh, what you're saying, I've I've heard that before, and basically it it shows how the the system is broken. And in in reality, sometimes it creates its own monster and encourages people to violate the law. I'm not condoning that. But when you have children to feed and you have you need a place to stay and uh, you're, you're trying to do right and follow the rules and you get penalized for it, uh, uh, people who are not strong-willed will uh, do things that they are not supposed to do. And uh, it's, it's uh, just something we need to uh, to work on. We're going to talk more about that a little later on in the program. But now, what are some of the challenges for people in deep poverty and living on welfare. I think we kind of talked about some of those already, but what are some other ones that we haven't talked about yet? Well, it's kind of a catch-22. I'm going to refer back again to the cliff effect. That is that how one, at what point does one know that they are going to be able to afford to fulfill the things that the Uh, safety net benefits provide. And the perfect example, I'm going to go back to daycare again. I don't have anybody little anymore. I don't know what daycare costs, but I can imagine that $7.50 an hour is not going to pay for that along with rent because there um, there are charts online that you can go to that will tell you the standard rent for a two bedroom apartment in all 50 states. And what hourly amount of money a person has to be earning to even be able to afford that. 
none of them reflect $7.50 an hour. Mm-hmm. So if you're on public assistance and you're, let's say you're in a Section 8 house, you're getting um, uh, um, uh, food stamps, you're receiving subsidized daycare if you're going to school. I don't know if those programs are still there. I mean, some of this from what I'm seeing has all but gone away, and they're still chiseling further, which is why it's so important for people to not give up on themselves because we're already in a society where we could have one thing or another sway us or push us or pull a rug out from under us, and when you're on public assistance, you are literally just subject to having everything completely pulled from you. So, And it's so limiting. Why would anyone only want to have that for themselves? Well, again, because when I decided that it was going to be time for me to move on, I knew from the day I applied that this is it. This is the sub. This is the nature of the treatment I'm getting. I'm still heartbroken. I just left my comfort. I just left the man I ever loved the most in the whole wide world. I'm in a strange city, and this is the response that I'm getting. Not all caseworkers, but some of them really treated me badly. I mean, um, and not only that, but even just the required things that they ask of you. How many women out there that are listening right now have ever experienced what it's like to have a caseworker sit down and take, okay, with me it was my little $152 a month check that I was getting for my $170 box of roaches. And whenever it was time for me to recertify, she would make me go through and tell her personally how I spent that whopping $152. And some of the questions that she was required to ask me were, Miss Covington, how did you pay for your sanitary supplies? Yeah. I so understand. you see, they have to help you account for every penny of that. And babies have to have diapers. You can't cover that with food stamps. Your welfare check wasn't even paying my rent for my dilapidated place I lived in. I mean, so I can only imagine that with everything being the way they are now, that the the challenges are are just unlimited. And and, And now you have net neutrality. People are going to not be able to afford Internet access unless they can have some other means for job searching. I don't know about everyone else's city, but there are literally no job ads in a newspaper anymore. No, that's just about going away. So, uh, there so is, I'm sure the challenges are unlimited. Okay. Uh, it would appear that way. Uh, we're talking with uh, Ms. Pamela M. Covington who is a speaker, author, and advocate. And our topic for discussion this evening is Lessons for Us All, Overcoming Extreme Poverty and Life on Welfare. We would like to hear your viewpoint about the welfare system. So call us now with uh, your question at 563-999-3660 or your comment. And when you call, please remain on the line. We'll get to your call as soon as we can. 
That number again is 563-999-3660. Right now we're going to take a brief break, and when we return, we'll discuss whether social programs like welfare work and if they are necessary. So stay tuned. This is the CWR Network. Hashtag one million strong. Letting the world know it isn't cool, and by letting your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Start it off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Today we decided to walk to school. The light counted. 15, 14, 31, I mean 13. We took a left on Carroll Street. Danny's smart, but he gets distracted. I realized he forgot his homework. I hope he doesn't have another bad day at school. When you can see learning and attention issues from their side, you can be on their side. That's why there's understood.org, a free resource for the parents of the one in five kids with learning and attention issues. Go from misunderstanding to understood.org. Brought to you by Understood and the Ad Council. This is the CWR Network. Hashtag one million strong. Welcome back. If you just joined us, this is Dino Edwards Viewpoints. Tonight's topic for discussion is lessons for us all, overcoming extreme poverty and life on welfare. And our very special guest is speaker, author, and advocate, Ms. Pamela M. Covington. Now, before we resume our conversation, I just want to make our listeners aware of our Know Your History Black History Month contest which was announced in this month's CWR Nation newsletter. 
If you have not subscribed to our newsletter, you may get a link to the newsletter and submit your entry at our website, C-W-E-R-T-A-L-K-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. That's C-W-E-R-T-A-L-K-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. Just go to the bottom of the homepage, click on the February newsletter link, which is under the Know Your History Black History Month contest heading. And in the Black History Month section of the newsletter, just send the names of all nine of the Black History Makers shown. Your correct entry could be picked, and you could win $100. So know your Black History and earn $100. Submit your entry today at cwrtalknetwork.com. Now, back to our program. According to the Census Bureau, uh, in 2015, nearly one in seven Americans and one in five American children lived below the federal poverty line. President Trump and many others in politics and among the general public are of the opinion that social programs like welfare don't work and should be abolished. As a former welfare recipient, what are your thoughts about America's social safety net today? Uh, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to go back and revisit that statement. It says the social programs like welfare don't work. Okay then let's get to the root of the problem. Why don't they work? And then I'll tell you what my experience has taught me was uh, that they don't work because they're not effective. Okay. It may not be all of the individuals. Surely it's not all of the recipients that is the reason why it does not, quote, unquote, work. And, of course, one also uh, may have a definition of what success is what does success look like you see it is my opinion based on what i experienced in those three years and i mean i was hustling to get myself out of the system asap that i had to bump around and and by circumstance just by like a pinball game to find and locate resources and to be able to tap in. What if the welfare system was actually structured in such a way that at the time of applicancy, individuals were given a roadmap of sorts? I mean, when someone is in a situation of destitution, and believe me, I was, it took every bit of pride I had to put it aside to go and ask someone to help me take care of these two children I brought into this world out of choice. But no one gave me any kind of guidance that would help me steer towards making a career decision of how I would get out of it or even housing. Uh, No one gave me guidance. I didn't know anything about Section 8 housing. I had no reason prior to my falling into poverty, to even know uh, that it even existed. I found out by word of mouth. Why didn't a social worker make me aware of that? Had she done that for a year and a half, my children and I would not have had to live in a place that took every bit of our $152, 
because it costs $170 a month. We would not have had to endure a year and a half of sweltering heat in a cement tenement that only had one window in the front and one window in the back because nobody told me about Section 8. And when I did find out, I found out about from another tenant, and the waiting list was a year and a half long. It took a year and a half once I applied to get in. So getting back to why it doesn't work, because it's too fragmented, it doesn't have any standards, it doesn't give people a definition or a goal. If a person is lost, and in financial distress, don't know how they're going to live, where they're going to eat, and where they're going to sleep. How in the world can one expect that all of a sudden, because you're throwing them some coinage, they're going to have all the answers to their own situation? It just doesn't make sense. So, again, what if we not reform. I hate the term reform. We have come to equivalate and know that when anyone utters the word welfare reform, they are only talking about cutting it. I like to employ the term revamping because welfare and the safety net benefits would work more efficiently if they had some kind of standards and goals. You have all these lawmakers who have one definition of what works. You have recipients who have a definition of what success would look like. And let me clarify something. I am not on anyone's side. I am not on the side of those persons who would take something that is so necessary to people when they find themselves in adverse conditions and abuse it but neither am I on the side of a government who thinks that it's a program that doesn't need to exist. It needs to exist, but it's old. It's outmoded. People are not being given. What if we assessed a person's skills when they came in? I'm telling you, there has to be so much more to it than an application process, the meager handouts, and a time limit. You just can't throw those three things at people when they're as lost and disheveled and emotionally distraught, children, housing, medical, you name it. All of those are major things that add or take away from our quality of life. And you cannot expect a person to receive that. It's not even enough to really make it and have a sense of direction that all of a sudden they're going to be able to pull themselves up by the so-called bootstraps, well, there's a lot of assumptions being made there that are incorrect. And one of them, you're assuming that the person even has boots. Or the, the example that I like to use is when my children and I were in that deplorable condition and we had no stove for five months, we still had to live by the cardinal rule of food stamps. And what is that rule? That I can only buy food that you can take home and do what with, Donnell? Are you following? No. Yes. You, can only take, you can only buy food that you can take home and cook. So there was okay. already an assumption made that I had a stove, That's which I did true. not for five months. Now, if I'd have been in a Section 8 house that has – established standards, one of which is appliances, then I would be able to fulfill that. So you see, that whole system from beginning 
to end needs to be revamped. And it needs to begin with the responsibilities that need to be on the recipients. Again, I'm on no one side. I just feel that that money could be spent in a way that both helps uh, cut the unnecessary costs from the government's end, but at the same time is efficiently helping that person. It's called the, well, the department back then was called health and rehabilitative services, just throwing somebody coinage and telling them, okay, we're helping you. Now get to it. you got three years or five years or whatever the time limit is that you get from point A to point B, however you have to. That's not the way. That's not helping the children. That's not helping the recipients. It's not even helping the government. And to those persons who always want to cry about abuse, abuse, here's my response, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) What is it? that mankind has access to, okay, that is not subject to abuse. We have abuse of power. We have drug abuse, alcohol abuse. We got domestic abuse. And now you think that because someone is going to get these meager provisions that granted can possibly help them lift themselves up, that it's got some force field around it, it's not going to be subject to abuse. Come on, people, let's be for real here. So, yes, it may not work because it's an old system. It needs to be revamped to meet today's societal needs, which is one of the reasons why I support literacy the way I do. Okay. Now, based on your experience, you've been through this. So based on your experience, the comments you just made, that the one in uh, seven Americans and the one in five American children, uh, according to the Census Bureau, that are below the poverty level, they need welfare. If, if this, that, is that yes. what you're saying? Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, the, the other thing to uh, help our listeners really appreciate this even more when you found yourself in the situation that you were in, which was not caused by anything that you did, what would have happened, or uh, we we can't say for certainty, but uh, based on the circumstances that you were you found yourself in at that time, what do you feel probably would have happened if there had not been welfare or some other social program similar to it uh, for you and your children? Well, that's really hard to imagine because uh, even living in the dilapidated housing that I was in, granted the majority of my welfare check paid for that. Mm -hmm. And for the week prior to that, my children and I were living in a moving van And that was expensive. Mind you, when I fled the domestic situation, I had X amount of dollars in my pocket. But you see, when you're riding around with a moving truck and you're paying a fee per day and 40 cents a mile and you're staying in hotels and you're eating out and you're paying parking, all of that adds up. And if I didn't, find a place to live immediately, I wasn't going to have enough money to even rent the box of roaches and have a security deposit. 
So by getting the welfare, once I got in there, it enabled me to, well, like I said, it was $170 a month um, for the rent. And my welfare check for the three of us was 152 so I got the $18 from child support or, or, what, or what have you every month. But then I was still left with all the other things that I had to provide for. And um, without the public assistance or the knowledge even of Section 8, how long would my children and I have been trapped in that tenement with the one window in the front and one window in the back and no mm-hmm. heat and no air? Right. So, right. you know, one time I remember, and I wrote about this in a book, it was time for recertifying again, you know, when I had to go back to the caseworker and show dime for dime how the money was spent, and I was telling her how bad it was where we lived at. Um, uh, it was right by the railroad tracks, and I, when I first moved in, we were so scattered with everything that was going on. Sure, a train came by in the daytime. We didn't pay it any attention, but one night in the middle of the night, after our second or third night there, that train came by and shook that entire building, and my baby woke up in the middle of the night screaming at the top of his lungs, and I went into a panic, and I ran back there, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, this is all just... It's just unimaginable. Just imagine sweltering heat by day, freezing temperatures at night, because this happened in the year, one of the years that Florida actually froze over. <laughs> and I oh, had ice on my windows with no heat. <laughs> so okay. where would we have been? I know I wouldn't have given up, but my progress would not have moved along as quickly as I was able to. Okay. Now, uh, one point we want to make is that no matter who we are or what our background may be, whether we're middle class, upper class, or lower income, when faced with severe economic reversals, we all need help to overcome that adversity. Now, I'm not talking about just financially, but satisfying the need for employment, housing, health care, emotional and spiritual encouragement, And other things that people who have means may take for granted. So where did you find that help, and where do you recommend that others find that kind of help? Okay. Well, in a perfect world with a perfect welfare system, I would like to believe that that need and guidance for employment, housing, and health care would come from the same agency that is supposed to be there helping you to, quote-unquote, rehabilitate your situation. It certainly would have benefited me. Mm -hmm. And so where did I find that help? Well, my job came about as a result of my willingness to go back to school. Now, when I went back, I wasn't sure what it was I was going to take. You know, I only knew that... Uh, I wanted to do something different than what I had done before I fled. Now, when I was in Savannah, I worked as a radio announcer. And so I kind of like the communications field, but the radio stations were going a little closer towards automation back then, and they were being bought and sold like crazy, and they were changing formats. I remember one station I worked at was a top 40 station for years, and then all of a sudden one night they decided they're going to turn into a big band music station. So radio (laughs) wasn't stable at that time. 
And so I wanted to go back to school to uh, do something in communications, but I just wasn't sure what it was. And, of course, we didn't have all the technology that we have today. Um, so my employment came about as a result of my going to school and doing unpaid internships and uh, as happenstance, not part of the school program, but by doing the internships, I had a very fluky thing happen, and that led me to decide that, hey, I think this is what I want to do. So my my help for employment came from my junior college education, Florida uh, State College it's called now. Housing, okay. that that came about as a result of my talking with one of the other young women who lived in a tenement with us. Uh, she asked me when she came over one day and saw that the children and I had no heat, she, her heart went out to us, and she saw how we huddled our whole life centered around this kerosene heater I had borrowed from someone. I would cook on it by day. It was my stove. And while we were downstairs in, 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 in the daytime, and then at night, it would go upstairs with us, and I would put it in the hallway because it had so many fumes, I didn't feel safe enough to put it in the boys' room. So I'd put it in the hallway. And so she came over, and she, when she saw what we were doing, she said, do you know about Section 8 housing? And I'm like, no, what is that? And then she explained to me that it was income-based housing that had government standards of heating and air conditioning and appliances. And she told me that I should go apply for it, but I should do it right away because the wait, the wait time is, is always lengthy. She herself wasn't, only reason why she wasn't in one was because she had met a, a young man and they had made plans to marry. Okay. But, so my housing advice did not come from my caseworker who, by the way, when I complained to her that my $152 check did not cover my $170 of rent, I kid you not, she told me that I needed to lower my living standards. She told me I yes. was living beyond my means. So I no, the knowledge, of section, the knowledge of Section 8 housing did not come from the Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services. So this is, again, why I'm saying I feel the whole system needs to be revamped. Health care became crucial to me because my older son developed some behavioral problems that actually required psychological evaluation. And so the health care was being provided in form of Medicaid. Um, okay. Emotional and spiritual encouragement. Emotional and spiritual encouragement came to me uh, from a church that I found an affinity towards and became a member of. In fact, it was one of them who eventually uh, helped me make my decision. I'm like, well, do I get off of welfare and go get a job? How's that going to work? Will I be able to afford daycare? Will I be able to do this or that? Or do I go back to school? And she felt that I should go back to school, and then she began telling me. And, and granted, I was scared. I'm not going to say and act like I've never had any days without doubt and all of that. That is not true. Every time she talked to me about school, I would come up with this reason why I felt I couldn't do it. I said, well, what about daycare? I won't be able to afford daycare and blah, blah, blah. And she says, 
oh, don't you know? You could get subsidized daycare if you enroll and stay in school full time. All you'll have to do is show them that you're in school every semester. And then I said, well, I need money for school supplies, and I won't have money for this, and I won't have money for that. I kept coming up with every kind of reason to not get my behind back in the classroom. (laughs) And And she counteracted every one of them. I mean, it got to the point where... I wanted to avoid her when I saw her at church because I know if I saw Sylvia, she's going to come and ask me how's things coming with school. So that emotional and spiritual encouragement did come from a church and, and the people there. And then some of the greatest encouragement came to me from several members of the Jacksonville Urban League. Okay. They were the ones who saw my children day in and day out for the first week while we were homeless and tried to help us find a place temporarily while this young man was on the phone from the time he got to work until the time he left at 5 o'clock for three days until he finally found somebody that was willing to take a chance on renting to me. I never thought I was considered any kind of risk to anybody, but I was wrong. Even though I had money in my pocket for our first month's rent and security deposit, we went through all kind of things, and he went to battle for me. He he was my hero. And so uh, as far as encouragement, I got a lot of encouragement from the members of the Jacksonville Urban League, one of them who was a woman who was a receptionist there who eventually kind of took my children and I in as family. In fact, it was December the 10th or 12th when we arrived in Jacksonville, and she had seen and got familiar with us, and I could see her concern. She actually had the children and I come over to her home at Christmas so that the children would have Christmas. Okay. So... So, May I quickly just say that for persons in any kind of dire situations that there is still a good branch of humanity out there that I can't tell you how many times that once persons heard of my and my children's situation and they saw that I wanted to do better for myself and my children and I cared for them in a manner that I should, that people did come to my aid. So don't give up and don't think no one cares. Okay, so the the point here that we want to emphasize is that to be be effective, you have to find your support system. You have to do that because you can't do it by yourself. So you're listening to Lessons for Us All, Overcoming Extreme Poverty and Life on Welfare on Donnell Edwards' Viewpoints this evening. Our special guest is speaker, advocate, and author of the book, A Day at the Fair, that's F-A-R-E, one Woman's Welfare Passage, Miss Pamela M. Covington. We're going to take a break right here, and we'll be right back in just a few minutes. This is the CWR Network, hashtag one million strong. month of February, the CWR Talk Network is proud to present our special series, Black American Achievement Profiles, 
honoring the achievements of black Americans from the past and the present. Sponsored by Bass, Edwards, and Associates Virtual Services Corporation, the leader in work-from-home opportunities. Bass Reeves was an imposing figure at 6 feet, 2 inches tall, and 180 pounds. He made even the most violent outlaws think twice before they resisted arrest. This, along with the fact that he was a skilled, ambidextrous gunslinger, could account for Reeves' extraordinary ability to round up and bring in multiple prisoners at once. On one occasion, he herded 19 horse thieves to the federal jail in Fort Smith, Arkansas, by himself. Born into slavery in 1838, his early years were spent as the property of the William S. Reeves family of Crawford County, Arkansas. In 1846, the family moved to Grayson County, Texas, where Reeves remained with them until the Civil War. During the war, he escaped to Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, where he found refuge among the Creek and Seminole tribes and learned their languages and ways of life. He often assisted deputy marshals with his knowledge of the land as they tracked criminals through Indian Territory. This led to a commission of his own as a deputy marshal in 1875. Reeves became one of the first African-American deputy marshals west of the Mississippi River. Reeves' tracking abilities and skills with a gun soon earned him notoriety with the outlaws throughout the region. He brought in outlaws by the dozens from all over Indian Territory. In 1890, he arrested Greenleaf, a Seminole outlaw who evaded capture for 18 years and murdered seven people. In 1902, he made his most difficult arrest, his own son, Benny, for the murder of his wife. Through a career spanning 32 years, there is no record of Reeves ever being wounded, a feat that earns him the nickname, the Invincible Marshal. Reeves served under seven different U.S. Marshals. He died of Bright's disease, a disease of the kidneys, in January 1910. Bass Reeves, Black American History Maker, legendary U.S. Marshal. Listen for more Black American Achievement Profiles throughout the month on the CWR Talk Network. Black American Achievement Profiles is sponsored by Bass, Edwards, and Associates Virtual Services Corporation. The innovative solution to at-home work opportunities by reaching new pinnacles every day with ingenuity, integrity, and class. For more information, call 405 928-3254. This is the CWR Network. Hashtag one million strong. Welcome back to Donnell Edwards Viewpoints, and thanks for joining us for tonight's discussion. Uh, panel, we're just about out of time, and there was so much more I wanted to talk to you about. The one thing we get to uh, talk about before uh, concluding this evening, and that's the link, the relationship between literacy and poverty. Could you come in on that for us, please? Yes, uh, if you uh, go online, anyone can look up various statistics, but the one that I most commonly refer to is that 46 to 51% of adults who are living below poverty are only there because they cannot read. 
And let's face it, if you look back historically speaking, we know that mankind so-called evolved in different ages. During the Stone Age, you had to know how to make like Fred Flintstone and get that hammer and chisel and bring something into being (laughs) in shape. Then we moved on to the Iron Age where man learned that there were metals and that they could be heated and forged and, and turned into weapons or hunting, uh, things for hunting. Well, we are now in what is known as the information age. And if a person cannot decipher the knowledge that is all around them or comprehend it, I'm sorry, but there's not going to be much of a place for them at this point. It's an information age, and the demand is on a person's ability to be able to decipher and comprehend information in order to reach any kind of potential in today's society. And so if you cannot do that, when I say decode, I mean being able to sound out the words. And when I say comprehend, meaning to understand the word's meaning. I mean, you can't, people, can't even, people who can't read prescription bottles are putting themselves at risk. There's just so many applications, so many requirements to be able to read and write. And if you can't fill out a job application or if you can't go online and read job descriptions, I mean, that's just one example of how you'll be locked in. And you can't navigate your child through public school system if you can't read and sign papers. So poverty and literacy, uh, uh, unfortunately, they're, they're good buddies. Many of the people who are incarcerated, it's been found that 80% of them read on a fourth grade level. And that has to be frustrating to be surrounded by something and not be able to decipher and comprehend it. True. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, How may our listeners contact you to learn more about your work And to get your book, A Day at the Fair, One Woman's Welfare Passage, or to hire you to speak to their company or organization. The book, A Day at the Fair, can be found on Amazon in both paperback and as an e-book. And I hope to eventually complete the project I've begun in producing it as an audio book. I can be reached, and you can find in-depth information about me by going to my website at www.pamela, middle initial M like in Mary, Covington, C-O-V-I-N-G-T-O-N dot com. And if you'll go to the contacts page, you'll also find a form that will enable you to get in touch with me if you'd like to consider booking me for speaking. Okay. Pamela, thank you so much for sharing your very personal experience with overcoming poverty with us this evening and your encouragement to others who may find themselves in similar circumstances to reject futility and fight to achieve their goals. No matter how bleak their situation may appear to be, on behalf of the CWR Talk Network, thank you for appearing tonight on Donnell Edwards Viewpoints. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you, Donnell. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome. We would like to thank also uh, each of you, our listeners in CWR Nation, for joining us for tonight's broadcast. 
please join my friend and fellow host on the CWR Talk Network, Mr. Lionel Shipman, tomorrow night, that's Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. Central and 8.30 Eastern for his program, the Lionel Shipman Shape Your Finances Show. And his special guest will be nationally recognized author, speaker, and consultant, Ms. Jeanette Adams. And they will be discussing what everyone needs to know about money. And following Lionel at 8.30 p.m. Central, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, join Dr. Monica Y. Jackson for The Journey with this week's guest, two parents with special needs children, as they discuss love, health, and wellness caring for children with special needs. Then on Thursday at 8 p.m. Central and 6 p.m. Pacific, host Lupe Marino has a very special guest on her show, Breaking Our Silence. Lupe will be discussing when children witness abuse with child abuse and rape survivor, Miss Jessica Janier. Join Lupe at 6 p.m. on the West Coast and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Visit our website, blog talk, that's B-L-O-G-T-A-L-K dot com forward slash C-W-R talk radio for more details on all of our programming. And don't forget, we're also available now on iTunes and Stitcher. So if you miss an episode, you can listen anytime, just about anywhere on iTunes and Stitcher. That's it for tonight's program. As has become our custom. We leave you with our musical message for this week, which comes from a powerhouse in the music industry, Earth, Wind, and Fire, with words of encouragement for everyone who has struggles in life and obstacles to overcome. Our message to you is keep your head to the sky.
This is the CWR Network. Hashtag one million strong.